This is the Kol Hadash Podcast. We've restored a recording made roughly 10 years ago to provide some non-pandemic-related content. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom delves into the meaning of the word sacred. I want to tell you about my first visit to Jerusalem. It was 15 years ago. It was a summer program. I was studying at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And one of the trips I wanted to take was to the Western Wall. I had learned about it in my history classes of Jewish history. I had read about it in textbooks. I was familiar with its imagery, but I'd never actually been there. And so I went, and it's a very striking sight. When you walk into this plaza, it's a huge plaza. And I knew the history that that plaza didn't used to be there. There used to be lots of homes that were there that were, in fact, knocked down to create the plaza to make it a tourist attraction. It used to be an alleyway where people stood to touch the wall. And I saw a big yeshiva that was set up next door just to get attention. And I saw the gender segregation where there was a very high fence to separate the men from the women and to supervise who was with whom. And I knew that it was a site run by the religious authorities in Israel because I forgot to bring a baseball cap and they made me put this stupid paper yarmulke on my head so I could just get close to the wall. And of course the wind is blowing and I'm having to walk. I mean, it's, it was more comic than serious. And I knew that it's not as old as people think it is. It's not from the first temple in the time of King David. It's not a remnant of the destruction of that temple in 586 BCE. It's not even part of the walls of the second temple that were built originally around 400 BCE. These are part of Herod's expansion of the temple that was done around 70, 60 of the common era. It's what's left when the temple was destroyed after that. So it's 2,000 years old, but it's not 2,500 or 3,000 years old, as some people think. And I knew that in some ways the wall is emblematic of the peace issues that are so bedeviling when it comes to Jerusalem because right above the wall is the Temple Mount and on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock which is in some ways part of the point of battling over Jerusalem on either side and I knew that if I wrote something on a piece of paper and put it in the wall it would be like talking to a wall <laughs> I would not get results and yet Knowing all these things, with all of this present in my mind, when I touched those stones and I felt how smooth they were because so many generations of people had touched these stones, it was still an electric moment. Now, I didn't really feel anything. There was no scar on my fingers. Why was it electric? Well, because I knew all of that history. Because it was an emotional connection with my people and the people before me who had thought about this place and prayed facing this place and longed to return to this place and at Passover said next year in this place. Now, was this moment a sacred experience? Or for a humanist, as meaningful as that moment might have been, is nothing sacred? Now this was the fear of the Romantics who objected to science sticking its nose everywhere. John Keats, the English poet, wrote very famously, 
Do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy? There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her woof, her texture. She is given in the dull catalog of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and gnomed mine, unweave a rainbow. Science takes all the fun out of it. The sacred, the mysterious, the holy, it's, it's ruined. Now, the critique of the scientist would be, well, you're only calling holy what you don't know. You see, the rainbow was holy when you had no idea what the heck it was. And sometimes you call something holy so nobody asks about it. It's not just that you don't know, it's that you don't want anyone to know. Think of that scene in The Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. That's holy, right? I mean, The Wizard of Oz, that's holiness. You don't touch, you don't question, you don't ask until the dog opens the curtain. Now, if you take a naturalistic approach to the world, if you focus on this life instead of a life beyond, if you explore what people can know and learn from observation and reason and human experience, then what remains of the concept holy? Well, I want to explore three possibilities to say that. I will give you an answer, by the way, at the end. The first possibility is to look through history and see what the concept of holy or sacred has meant. Now, in Hebrew, the word holy is kadosh, or kadash is the three-letter root, kuf, dalad, shin. It shows up in other very commonly used words. In fact, kiddush, as you've used for wine, is the sanctification of the wine. Or the kaddish has that same three-letter root. It's the prayer for the dead, but also a staple of the regular traditional prayer service. It shows up in a half kaddish and a rabbi's kaddish, and there are all these other versions that nobody knows about because they only know it from reading the little pamphlet at the funeral home. It begins, Yitkadal Kadash. Again, that kadash, that holiness. The Hebrew root, kadash, originally means to be set apart, something that's different from everything else. You could say, in modern vocabulary, something special, something unique. The people of Israel in the Bible and elsewhere is called a holy people. For example, in Deuteronomy, you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So you are a holy people. You have been chosen from all the peoples. You are choice people. Now, you go into a Reconstructionist or a Reform, or even in many cases a conservative synagogue, and they will try to explain how this doesn't mean what it sounds like. That being the chosen people doesn't mean you think you're better than everyone else. It just means you're distinct. Well, if 0.05% of the world's population has defined itself as the in-group, defining 99.95% of the population as miscellaneous, well, it's making a statement. Certainly, if the god of the universe has chosen only this small group, well, it's making a statement. It's a special distinction. Calling this the only people that is holy, you have chosen us from all the peoples to receive your Torah to be holy. I mean, if you go to an Orthodox setting, they make no bones about it. Being the chosen people means you're the best. 
My joke is that we've gone from being, in the secular world, the chosen people to the choosy people. So we complain a lot. In fact, it's not that we're better than everything else, it's that nothing is good enough for us. Okay. Now, the other challenge with the history of the term holy is that it's provided from something above or beyond you. Being holy, being kadosh, getting sanctified is something that is not inherent in you or not even something you can do for yourself. I don't sanctify myself. It's something that's done to you or that's done to an object. It's done by something else and done by something beyond. When Aaron and his sons were dedicated to their service as priests, it was through the power of God that came down and made them holy. And the sanctuaries are made holy by the priests who are working with divine support. Even if you sanctify an object, you do a kiddush on the wine. You may know that if you read the traditional blessing, you're not blessing the wine. What is the traditional blessing? Blessed are you, God, who makes the wine. If the wine is holy, it's not because of you. And everything that was considered holy was considered to partake in another plane of existence because of that sanctification. The Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem with its concentric courts moving into the center of the temple called the Kodesh HaKodashim, the Holy of Holies. It's a special room that only the high priest at the holiest moment, at the holiest day of the year, at the Day of Atonement, and his peak of purity, only at that moment could he enter that space. Because... To be holy was to be different, to be other, to be separate, to be part of another world. And when you cross that line between the ordinary, the human, and the sacred, in fact, you made yourself ritually unclean. That might strike you as funny and odd. Why, why would touching something holy make you unclean? Well, it's not that the thing is unclean. It's that you cross the boundary. You are rooted in this ordinary world. And when you touch something holy, you touch something beyond, you've crossed that line, and therefore you become unclean. Even the priest going into the temple offering sacrifices would make himself unclean. He would then have to, be, have to be purified afterwards. When they debated which books belonged in the Bible, they said, which ones, which books make the hands unclean? Not as in which are the dirty books. It's which books are holy, which books are separate. Which books cross that line between the ordinary and the divine? And the books that did not make the hands unclean didn't make it in the Bible because they weren't holy. The traditional Shabbat, end of Shabbat blessing called the Havdalah blessing. You praise God at the end of Shabbat, at the beginning of the week, as Hamavdil, the one who makes distinctions, being Kodesh Lachol, between the holy and the ordinary, the secular, sometimes the profane who also distinguishes between light and dark, between Israel and everyone else, between Shabbat and the six days of work. So you could say that holy means set apart or special, but in all honesty, you probably wouldn't call your birthday holy. Now, my four-year-old might consider her birthday holy, but at a certain point, you don't. Or if you and your spouse said that, well, our monthly date night, that's sacred. Well, you're being a little tongue-in-cheek there. There's some quotation marks around that. Now, my love for my children is unique, just as my children are unique. But I'm not sure that sacred is exactly the right word for that. So let's try a second strategy. Not history, but 
how it's used today. I mean, language changes over time. Its usage can modify. Just think of the word goodbye. It began as God be with you, but very few people mean that when they say goodbye these days. So consider what's implicit in saying nothing is sacred. If I said nothing sacred, it means that everything can be questioned, everything must be proven to be true, everything can be changed, everything can be criticized, yeah, and even everything can be made fun of and ridiculed. The motto of nothing is sacred is that sacred cows make the best hamburgers. Now, what does this imply about what is sacred? If I said nothing is sacred and it means that, well, what is sacred? The way we use it, something sacred is something that's unquestionable. It's assumed to be true. Something sacred can't really be challenged. The sacred cannot be criticized, and the sacred should not be ridiculed. So maybe there are limits to redefinition. Maybe some words don't leave their plain meaning. Now, Jews have redefined a lot over our 2,000 years of history, and even uh, in the rabbinic period, and certainly in the last 200 years since the Enlightenment. I mean, consider what we're doing here. We have services when we're not serving anybody, and we're not serving at the temple, which is what the service originally was, with animal sacrifices, and we have a rabbi who's not interested in focusing on Jewish law, which is what rabbis began by doing, but ever since the Reform Movement, they haven't been doing that. So can we take the word holy and say, well, it's flexible enough that we can redefine it? Now, the king of redefinition in modern Jewish life is a rabbi named Mordechai Kaplan, who helped to start the Reconstructionist movement, whose goal was to reconstruct, to provide new meaning for the old traditional phrases. And so he had to deal with the fact that he didn't believe in a supernatural God that answers prayers, but he believed in praying. He believed that cultures had major holy pieces in them, what he called the sancta. But he didn't believe that they were given by God. He felt they were given by the Jewish people. And so he had to find ways to deal with the word holy. And here's what he said. The distinction between the holy and the profane, the sacred and the secular, is essentially the same as the distinction between the valuable and the worthless, the important and the trivial, the significant and the meaningless. Holiness is that quality by which an object is felt to be of transcendent importance to us. Examples he gives include the United States Constitution, or the flag, or the Liberty Bell, or in Jewish life, a Torah scroll, or Jewish holidays. He goes on, but the value or sacredness of such holy objects is not inherent in them. The flag is but a piece of colored cloth the Sefer Torah, a piece of parchment with ink marks on it. It is life, or the relationship to those purposes that spell life's meaning for us, that give value to these objects. Kaplan's point is that we make things sacred, as we always have in every civilization. What makes them sacred is that people treat them as sacred. And maybe we can't escape using the word once in a while. After all, when you're talking about a uh, way to make special the sharing of wine on Shabbat, what else are you going to call it than a Kiddush? Now, would you call the Constitution holy? Some treat the flag with supreme reverence, but others see it as a symbol of our values and not holy and untouchable, perhaps even unmockable. 
Well, maybe you can mock it. Maybe you can use it to sell tchotchkes on Memorial Day. People do that all the time. You wouldn't do that with a holy icon. Well, maybe you would. And if our approach is that if you mean very important, maybe you should say very important instead of holy. And not confuse things with language that can mean something very different because when you say holy, it's a holy other meaning. And so a third possibility. Maybe the idea of holy things doesn't work for us. But maybe ideas can be holy. Concepts, people. We talk a lot about human dignity, the value of being in charge of your own life. In fact, if you go to our website and you read our material on humanistic Judaism, I have an article I wrote called The Values of Humanistic Judaism. And one of those values is that for us, the holy of holies, in quotes, is human dignity. Maybe free speech is an absolute good. Maybe having a free mind and making up your own mind for yourself, that's a holy idea. But you see, I come back to where the word holy started. Its supreme importance, the fact that it's very important to us, comes from us. It comes from our choices, from our experience, from our values, and not really from beyond us. When you open up the door to holy, to sacred, you're claiming that it's inviolate. It's an endorsement beyond the ordinary, beyond the human in some ways, and in some ways it's beyond our borders. Now, I try to be nice and accommodating as a rabbi. It's a very political position, after all. So I often avoid sharp definitions. But in this case, for me, yes, nothing is sacred. Question everything. Even question whether or not you should question everything. After all, we have a tradition in Jewish life of smashing idols. When something becomes too rigid, too formalized, too set in its ways, we challenge it. We question it. We explore. There's a marvelous poem by Yehuda Amichai which says, We are the children of Abraham, but we are also the grandchildren of Terach, the father of Abraham. And perhaps the time has come for us to do to our father what he did to his father. When Abraham smashed his father's idols and belief, maybe we have to smash ours, but that too will be the beginning of a new religion, he warns. Now, just because we say that nothing is sacred, that does not mean that nothing is important. It does not mean that nothing is worth living for or even worth dying for. When you say nothing is sacred, it means that we find of supreme worth what we value what we choose, what we celebrate, how we live our lives. Whether something is not important or important or very important or supremely important, these are all a spectrum on the same plane of existence, and that's ours. Now, I want to end my presentation with Marsha Falk's approach to Havdalah in her Book of Blessings. Now, she's still attached to the phrase holiness. She was trying to pitch her, audience, her uh, work to an audience that's of mixed religious perspective, some not theistic and some very theistic. But it's certainly a far cry from this division of the sacred and profane, the worthwhile and the worthless, the supernatural and the human, the endorsed from above and the received down below. In fact, she wrote in her own commentary to her translations, rather than make a hierarchical distinction, the blessing I write asks that we affirm difference as a positive value 
and celebrate the particular differences that make things distinguishable from each other. If we recognize that we are the ones making discriminations, we are more likely to take responsibility for making honorable and compassionate ones, which will support truth and justice in our lives. And notice, her Havdalah does not distinguish between Israel and everyone else, between the holy that is good and the profane, the ordinary, the worthless that is nothing. She finds value and importance in all of it, in the plane of human existence. Let us distinguish parts within the whole and bless their differences. Like the Sabbath and the six days of creation, may our lives be made whole through relation. As rest makes the Sabbath precious, may our work give meaning to the week. Let us separate the Sabbath from the other days of the week, seeking holiness in each. This was an archive episode from Kol Hadash. On behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash, I'm Ken Burke, and thanks for listening.